Tomorrow, the 14th of January, will be the 108th anniversary of the death of Private Joe Strudwick of the 8th Battalion, the Rifle Brigade. He died in action at Bosinger in Belgium, aged 15 years and 11 months. He's remembered for being one of the youngest casualties of World War I. This is his story, but also the story of other teenage Tommies, and those who served well into their 70s and 80s, and those who died at the start of the war, and as the conflict drew to a close, in an episode entitled Young, Old, First and Last. Welcome to Series 3, Episode 1. My name is John Pope. I'm a volunteer speaker with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and a story moderator on the Forevermore series, which details the lives of people who died for their countries. I have an interest in the stories of ordinary men and women who served in extraordinary times. So who was Joe Strudwick? Where did he come from? What did he do before the war? And how did he join up so young? And what of the others who framed the loss of World War I, the stories of the youngest and the oldest soldiers killed on the battlefield, and those who through ill luck or bad timing were the first and last to die? The answers are not always as simple as you might think. Valentine Joe Strudwick was born in Falkland Road, in the market town of Dorking beneath the Surrey Downs on February the 14th, 1900, hence the name Valentine. His father Jesse was a jobbing gardener, and his mother Louisa took in laundry. Joe, as he was known, was one of at least five siblings, and after leaving St Paul's School for Boys, he worked as a labourer and then helped his uncle, who was a coal merchant. As a volunteer speaker with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, I often talk to groups, societies, schools and colleges about the work of the Commission and sometimes tell the story of Valentine Joe. People often remark on his age. Older people react in horror that one so young could have been caught up in the war, whilst younger people find it hard to relate to how someone of a similar age to themselves would volunteer to fight in the trenches. I think there's two aspects to this. One is the attempt that people make to frame the scale of the conflict in terms that are meaningful for them. A battle which had almost 60,000 casualties on its opening day is shocking enough, but for some it means very little, even when you equate it to a typical home attendance for a Premier League match, such as those played at Arsenal, for example. So instead they try to focus on a single person, perhaps someone similar in age and background to themselves and seek to understand the motivations, the experiences, and the impact that such an event would have on them, if they were in a similar position. On hearing about Valentine Joe Strudwick, people often observe that at 15 years and 11 months, they were just completing school, or had a Saturday job, or just passed their GCSEs. It's worth bearing in mind that Joe and his contemporaries had probably left school at 12, and like many others, had been in the workforce for three to four years, and they considered themselves young men. This transference of the experience of another to oneself is not always an easy or successful route to gaining a greater understanding, and this links to the second of the two aspects, trying to apply modern social conventions and perceptions to another era. 
It's an obvious thing to say, but the early 20th century was quite a different time, and people thought about life and death in ways which may surprise us now. Conversely, people at the talks I often give say, I wonder what my grandfather would say about today's such and such. And the more they seek to understand what motivated young recruits to join up underage, the wider the gulf between now and then actually seems. Although Joe Strudwick was just short of 16, he was technically still too young to be serving overseas. In his book Teenage Tommy, Richard Van Emden describes the clear regulations which govern the enlistment, training and deployment of recruits aged 14 to 19. Some young people did join up at 14, earning the rank of boy, although there were limits to what they could do and where they could be sent. To join up, a recruit had to be 18. To serve overseas, a soldier had to be 19 and have signed the Imperial Service Obligation Form. In some regiments, this was signed when the soldier enlisted. In others, it was left to the discretion of the soldier, depending on their age, marital status, family obligations and so on. Some new recruits simply lied about their age. And this issue was briefly covered in Series 1, Episode 9 of Those Who Served, in which Lance Corporal Charles Judge served and died as an experienced NCO in the 2nd Royal Sussex Regiment at the Battle of Luz, despite being only 17 years and 5 months old. Stories abound of recruiting sergeants asking potential young enlistees to walk around the block and come back when you're 19. And it's true that the army was under pressure in the first three years of the war to replace the early catastrophic losses of 1914 and 15. To reflect this, in 1918, the minimum age for overseas service was reduced to 18 and a half. So Joe Strudwick was one of those young men who lied about his age. And when he enlisted in January 1915 in Lambeth, he was still only 14 years old. He chose a very busy recruiting office, and two years labouring as a coal merchant had helped him develop into a strong and sturdy young man, so it's likely that a cursory glance by the recruiting sergeant would have been sufficient for him to say, OK, you're in. After six weeks training in Winchester, he joined the 8th Battalion and was sent to the Western Front. Reports suggest he was gassed and in shock from seeing two friends killed in front of him, and Joe was sent to a base hospital in Sheerness to recover, although whilst on home leave, he chose not to visit his family, perhaps concerned that they would persuade him not to return. But Joe did return in late 1915 and was sent to Bosinger near Ypres. He was killed on the 14th of January 1916 during the morning exchange of shellfire sometimes called the Daily Hate. His mother Louisa received the following letter from his commanding officer dated 15th of January. I'm very sorry indeed to have to inform you that your son was killed by a shell on January the 14th. His death was quite instantaneous and painless and his body was carried by his comrades to a little cemetery behind the lines, where it was reverently buried this morning. A cross is being made, and will shortly be erected on his grave. Rifleman Strudwick had earned the goodwill and respect of his comrades and his officers, and we are very sorry indeed to lose so good a soldier. On their behalf as well as my own, I offer you our sincere sympathy. Valentine Joe Strudwick was buried in what later became Essex Farm Cemetery, near Ypres, one of the most frequently visited graves in a very popular cemetery. But many other 15-year-olds also lay beneath headstones nearby, and in nearby cemeteries, which bear the legend known unto God. 
Not far from Essex Farm is Polkapel Military Cemetery. It too has a frequently visited grave, and one that is often part of the tour for coach parties of students and schoolchildren. The grave is that of Private John Condon of the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Irish Regiment. The accepted story is that John was killed during the gas attack which heralded the start of the Battle of Mousetrap Farm on the 24th of May 1915, although British soldiers often called it Shelltrap Farm. This battle was part of the larger Second Battle of Ypres. Heavy casualties that day among three Irish battalions caught up in the gas remained on the battlefield for some time before clearance and burials could begin, and some bodies were never recovered. Private Condon's remains were identified by a piece of boot leather in 1923, and he was interred in the Polkapel Cemetery, maintained by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. On his headstone, he's recorded as being aged 14, the youngest British and Irish soldier on the Commission's database. But is that the full story? In his book, Wherever the Firing Line Extends, Ronan McGreevy explores some of the doubts that the grave contains the remains of John Condon, and that the soldier who registered in his name was who he claimed to be. Census records from 1901 and 1911 suggest that John Condon was born in 1896 in Waterford Island, making him at least 18 and possibly 19 at the date of death. A story, related by John's cousin Nicholas, who survived the war, suggests that it may have been Patrick Condon, John's younger brother, who ran away to join up whilst underage, and used his elder brother's name to enlist. There was also some discrepancy between the site of the battle and where the body was reportedly found. Further research suggested that the remains may have been that of Private Patrick Fitzsimmons of the Royal Irish Rifles, who shared the same service number as John Condon, 6322, but who died approximately three weeks later, and is commemorated on the Menning Gate. Identifying bodies so long after the event presents its own challenges, and added to the fog of war and the difficulties of clear record-keeping about who died and who was missing and where they might be, means that such confusion is likely to be far more common than we realise. So if Private Condon, John or Patrick, wasn't the youngest soldier, who were the other candidates? Private Aubrey Hudson of the 22nd Battalion, the Royal Fusiliers, died on 28th of July 1916 at Delville Wood, aged 15 years and one month, and is commemorated on the Teepvale Memorial. He was born on the 30th of June 1901, near Ifield in Sussex, a tall lad and good at boxing, as one of his classmates remembered him. Again, he may have used his size and strength, to fool the recruiting sergeant into believing he was old enough to join up. It's worth remembering that few people had passports, identity papers or easy access to their own birth certificates, and no proof of age or identity was required during the attestation process. Another candidate for youngest soldier was Rifleman Robert Barnett of the 1st Battalion Rifle Brigade, who was 15 years and 6 months old when he was killed early in the war on the 19th of December 1914, during an attack on Plugsteer Wood. His real name was Raphael Glitzenstein, and he came from Hackney. His parents were Russian Jewish emigres, and apparently Raphael joined the army after a family argument, adopting the more English name Robert, and using his father's work name of Barnet as his own surname. 
These are just a few of the stories of the young men who joined up at an early age, for all sorts of reasons of their own, and they're notable only because history has chosen to make them so. There were many others, some 250,000 underage soldiers, some of whom fought and returned, whilst others did not. There's an excellent series on the BBC Teach website presented by Fergal Keane called Teenage Tommies, part of a wider programme occasionally available on iPlayer, which was made for the 1914-1918 centenary. Keane tells the stories of Private Avi Bevestein, who changed his name to Chambers and served in the Middlesex Regiment. Private Ernest Steele of the Machine Gun Corps, who was offered the opportunity to leave the front since he was under 19, but chose to remain. Of Horace Isles of the West Yorkshire Regiment, who died on the first day of the Somme. Second Lieutenant Sinjin Battersby of the East Lancashire Battalion, who lost a leg. And Private Cyril Jose of the Devonshires, who survived the war. A link to these short films is available on the episode extras page of the Those Who Serve website. So what of the old soldiers? Who was the oldest soldier to die in World War I? Part of the issue around this question is defining the role of the soldier. Were they on active service in the front lines, or were they serving in a support role? Both carried their risks, and old soldiers, some of whom had served in the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879, Sudan in 1885, the Second Boer War between 1899 and 1902, and the various expeditions and campaigns across the British Empire had become reservists and were called up once more in 1914. One old soldier, quartermaster and captain George Clements of the 1st Royal Dragoons, was born in 1831 and joined the army aged 15 in 1846. He fought in the Crimean War of 1854 and was promoted to officer after his part in the charge of the Heavy Brigade. He took part at Alma, Balaclava, Inkerman and Sebastopol, the four major battles of the war. He came out of retirement aged 83, but died in March 1916 aged 85. Although he did not see action, he's considered to be the oldest to have died on active service, and was accorded a military burial. His grave is still tended by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission in Earlham Road Cemetery in Norwich. After a successful career as a stockbroker, magistrate, church warden and local councillor, Henry Webber of Hawley in Surrey was not the type of man to retire and live in obscurity. He persuaded the army to give him a commission and offered his skills as a horseman to become transport officer for the 7th Battalion of the South Lancashire Regiment. His three sons, a colonel and two majors, all outranked him. On the 21st of July 1916, Webber's transport team took supplies to the front near Mamet's Wood. Webber joined a group of senior officers who were talking together just as a large calibre German shell detonated. Twelve officers and two horses were killed, and Webber lay badly wounded. He was rushed to the dressing station, but didn't recover consciousness. He became the oldest soldier to die in action, aged 67. He's buried at Dartmoor Cemetery near Bakor on the Somme. Photographs of both Quartermaster Clements and Lieutenant Webber and their headstones appear on the episode extras page of those who served. But whilst Clements and Webber are far less well known than Strudwick, Condon and the other teenage Tommies, the greatest focus, especially in recent years, 
has been on those who were killed first and last. Why is this? Again, the question is often asked during the talks I give for the Commission, and my personal view is that this is part of the framing which people need to apply to the period of war to help them make sense of it. Dates are one thing, history is full of dates, but what happened and why, and what did it mean to the people on the ground? The question of first and last became a point of interest during the recent 1914-18 centenary celebrations, and most sources will agree that the first British casualty was Private John Parr. John Parr was born in 1898 in Barnet and grew up in North Finchley in London. He joined a territorial unit of the Middlesex Regiment in 1912, lying about his age. He was only 14 at the time and is recorded as weighing eight and a half stone and standing five foot three inches tall. This evidence of his youth soon earned him the nickname Old Parr among his comrades. Parr became a reconnaissance cyclist a soldier who rode ahead to gather information on the advancing enemy, and in August 1914, Parr's battalion was stationed in the village of Bettigny in northern France. Historians disagree about the cause of his death, but the most common account is that Parr was sent to find a missing British unit and was killed by German rifle fire on the 21st of August after encountering an enemy cavalry patrol. Others believe that Parr might have been killed by friendly fire, or been wounded in the exchange and died in captivity later. Private Parr's body was never formally identified. Identification or dog tags were not routinely issued to soldiers until later in the war, but his body was recovered by the Germans and buried in a plot on a small hill south of Mons, which would later become St. Symphorian Cemetery. The age given on Parr's gravestone is 20, but he was actually 17. But was Private Parr the first to be killed? Britain declared war on Germany on August the 4th, 1914, and the number of serving personnel died between the 4th and the 21st of August. Some died of sickness, disease or accidents, but not directly as the result of enemy action. One, Major Arthur Hughes Onslow, shot himself in an apparent suicide during the crossing from Southampton to La Havre. As a decorated and long-serving officer, his death was widely reported at the time, but the circumstances remained secret, even to his family, until some time after the war had ended. The first casualties as the result of enemy action in Europe were on the destroyer HMS Amphion. On the 4th of August, she sank the German mine layer SMS König Louise, a converted liner, and rescued 18 of her crew. Returning from the patrol two days later, Amphion struck one of the mines which had been laid by the Koenig Louise and sank, killing 132 British sailors and marines, together with the prisoners of war. 152 officers and men were saved, and these were the first naval losses of World War I. Others, such as Private George Gooch of the Northamptonshire Regiment, who apparently went missing on the 11th of August, or Private Duncan MacDonald of the 1st Cameron Highlanders, who fell overboard from his ship on the 13th of August, could equally qualify as first casualties, but there's some doubt that their details were recorded correctly. Lastly, two members of the BEF, 2nd Lieutenant Evelyn Perry and Air Mechanic 2nd Class Herbert Parfit, died at Amiens on the 16th of August, when their aircraft caught fire in the hangar, perhaps as the result of an accident. 
So whilst there's no shortage of candidates, there's still some confusion about who exactly was the first casualty of the war. Again, history has decreed that Private John Parr is the most likely recipient of that particular title. So who was the last soldier killed as the result of enemy action? Helpfully, there is a time and date to help us to define this. The armistice came into force at 11 o'clock on the 11th of November 1918. All of the combatant armies can identify their final unfortunate casualties, but as far as Britain was concerned, it was Private George Ellison of the 5th Lancers, who died at about 9.30 in the morning whilst on mounted patrol on the outskirts of Mons in Belgium. Ellison was born in Leeds in 1878 and joined the army as a career soldier. He left, got married, took a job as a coal miner and fathered a son James, born in 1913. On the outbreak of war, Ellison was recalled to the army aged 36. His war began with the retreat from Mons and he survived four years of battles and trench warfare at Ypres, La Bassée, Luce and Cambrai before being shot by a sniper just 90 minutes before the armistice, back where he had started, in Mons. According to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, 863 British and Commonwealth servicemen were recorded with 11th of November 1918 as the date of the death on their headstones. While some did die on the final day of the war, many died of wounds suffered weeks, even months before. In a strange twist of fate, Private George Ellison was also buried in St. Symphorian Cemetery, only 15 feet from, and almost directly opposite, the grave of Private John Parr. The two men had been killed four years apart in time, but only a few miles apart from each other. A testament, perhaps, to the nature and course of the war. The story of Parr and Ellison was captured by Philip Parker in a poem for the war centenary, written in just 100 words, called Goodnight Kiss. Five strides apart, five summers past. I saluted you and the old sweats riding to war. I fell first and waited, while you mined the frozen mud, ducked into crump holes, pinched lice from your seams, felt the pear drops sting at wipers. You drink Hannah's words from home, Jimmy's walking now. Then you're following the tank tracks from Combray. The chase draws you to Mons where your war began. In the woods on the eleventh day, a goodnight kiss. Ninety minutes to armistice. My wait ends. First and last in a bunker for pals, we lie five strides apart. I'd like to thank the Commonwealth War Graves Commission for access to their archives, the Western Front Association, the Imperial War Museum, Richard Emden and Rona McGeevery, and various website resources for some of the links and photographs on the episode extras page of the Those Who Serve website. Until next time, 
Thank you for listening to Those Who Served with me, John Pope. You can listen to the show via the website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or a host of other platforms. If you listen on Apple, please leave a review as it makes the show easier for other Apple users to find. You can follow the show on social media via Twitter at Those Who Served or on Instagram those.whoserved. You can show your support for this free podcast by clicking on buymeacoffee.com on the Those Who Served website. All funds are used to cover the costs of research, production and syndication. You can join in with the show by sharing what details you know of a family member or friend who served in a 20th century conflict. Contact me directly by email at info at thank you.